Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is The Secret Library, a podcast about writing and publishing books. I'm Caroline Donahue, a life coach who works with writers, and I'm here to tell you this is your year. It's time to stop waiting and start writing. Welcome to episode 68. My guest this week is Gabriela Pereira, who is the creator and author of the book DIY MFA. She earned her MFA from the New School in New York, and while undercover as a graduate student, she learned the inside scoop on MFA programs. She invented a slew of writing tools all her own and developed a new, more effective way for writers to learn their craft. Now she wants to share this discovery and help writers around the world get the knowledge without the college. So I was really excited to have Gabriella on because I know so many of us have the MFA to MFA or not to MFA kind of, that is the question, Hamlet conundrum. And I really love speaking with Gabriella. Her book is really helpful in terms of creating your own MFA-esque experience without having to go through and pay for a program. And we really dove into some of the misconceptions and reasons to get an MFA or reasons you might not have to if you've been thinking about this as part of your writing journey. So let's get started with Gabriella. Now that we're back to school and it's September, are you looking to immerse yourself in a writing experience this fall? Are you ready to find an agent or think about publishing? Or are you looking for a great opportunity for critique of your work? The Central Coast Writers Conference is happening Thursday, September 28th through Saturday, September 30th in San Luis Obispo and will include over 60 workshops. I myself am a huge fan of writing conferences, so I'm really excited to share this event with all of you. And as a special thank you for our listeners, the conference is giving us $50 off the price of the conference with the code WRITER. You can learn more and sign up at secretlibrarypodcast.com slash central coast. So I hope all of you will check out the event. And if you are local to California, it might be a nice treat to get up there and take some workshops. Hey, Gabriella, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's so great to be here. Thanks for having me. Okay, so there's so many things that we could get into today because... Not only have you written and published a book, so that's interesting already, but the topic of the book, DIY MFA, I think anyone can determine from the title, there's a huge kind of debate, I would say, going on among people who want to write about whether or not the MFA is necessary. And can you put it together with a few workshops? Can you, you know, it's just because it's such an enormous expense to go unless you get a scholarship or a place that gives you a free ride. So I'd I'd love to just go right into it. Like, how did you come to the topic of DIY MFA, which is brilliant, by the way? And, and what are your thoughts about the traditional MFA route versus other routes to becoming a serious writer? So I love that you asked this question. And I'm going to start out by saying something that 
might sound a little controversial coming from me, but I'm not here to bash the traditional MFA system. I'm a firm believer that the MFA actually serves a very specific, very small slice of the writing universe extraordinarily well. The problem is that that little slice is like four people. So the the question then is, what happens to the rest of us, right? So the, the people who are well served by the MFA are people who need professors or outside uh, people pushing them to get things done. So like if you're someone who only works when you have a deadline, only works when you have to hand something in to a professor or an editor, then the MFA could possibly be for you. If you happen to have a whole heck of a lot of money sitting around and you don't know what to do with it, the MFA might be a worthwhile investment, probably better than going out and like, you know, doing something irresponsible with that money. But on the other hand, if you don't have the extra money to spend or taking the time off to get an MFA or, you know, the logistics of it. Like if you have to move across the country to go to the only school that has given you a free ride, all of these logistical considerations, if those things end up posing big hurdles for you, that's when the MFA becomes more of an issue. And I think that's where the debate comes in, right? The other piece of the puzzle is that unlike, say, a law degree or a medical degree where the actual credential is necessary in order to do the job, the MFA is not like that. So I know if I ever have open heart surgery or a lobotomy or something, I hope that that doctor has an MD. Like I will not go under the knife for a doctor who does not have that degree. Same thing if I am on trial for my life, like I am not going to have a lawyer representing me who has not gone to law school. That's just smart, right? Um, but with a with an MFA, like who goes into a bookstore and pulls a book off a shelf and says, gee, this author doesn't have an MFA. I guess I'm not going to read their book. Like nobody does that. So that's where kind of the debate I think comes up is that a lot of people are frustrated because there's this culture around the MFA that it's somehow required, yet it's not required. And it's this really big opportunity cost and financial cost as well. So that's kind of the, the beginnings of the debate. As to where the idea came from, well, I can tell you exactly the moment that it happened. So I went and I got an MFA myself. And uh, I went to the, I like to say I went to the MFA program for all the wrong reasons, but they were exactly the reasons that pretty much anybody goes to an MFA program for. So I thought I wanted to teach writing as a professor which now it turns out you don't need an MFA, by the way, to teach writing as a professor. You could be a very well-published writer and teach writing as a professor without an MFA. Also, having an MFA doesn't guarantee that you will get a teaching job. And if you do, it'll probably be like an adjunct professorship where you're working, you know, horrible long hours and not getting full professor or associate professor privileges. I have a few friends who do that and it's, you know, not exactly the glamorous thing it sounds like. So it, it can be very frustrating for a lot of writers who go into the MFA as an alternative to a full on PhD and then end up disappointed. And then on the on top of that, we have a glut of MFA grads, right? Like there's this whole problem now where the MFA programs are churning out graduates, but there aren't enough teaching positions for people who have graduated MFA programs and who want to teach at MFA programs. So it's sort of this self-fulfilling cycle that doesn't quite work. So I wanted to teach and I also wanted to get published. And of course, as we just as I just said, uh, you don't need an MFA in order to get published. So I was sitting in graduation at the end of my MFA program and it was in this old rickety church in the West Village. And I, you know, 
imagine the light streaming in through the stained glass windows, and I imagine the skies parting, and angel choirs would sing from the literary heavens, and suddenly I would become anointed writer. And of course, that totally didn't happen. Instead, I was sitting there being like, why did I get this degree? And part of that was the frustration of like of thinking I could have done a lot of these things on my own. In fact, I had already been doing a lot of these things on my own prior to the MFA. I had a critique group. I had assembled a group of writers who in many ways were more trusted than the workshops that I had in the MFA program. Like I relied more on my own critique group than in the MFA program. And then I also was reading a lot and doing like all those things that you would do anyway in an MFA program. So there was that frustration. But then there was also the side where I had a lot of friends who were saying, oh my gosh, you're so lucky. You're getting an MFA. That's so awesome. I wish I could do that. I could never do that. And I felt bad because I felt like, you know, there are people who really want this knowledge, but can't get it for all those reasons I mentioned before. So basically I'm sitting there and I had this idea. What if you could DIY the MFA? that just popped into my head as I'm sitting there. So at the time, I had this teeny tiny blog with 12 followers, one of whom was my mother. And I did what any normal follower or any normal blogger does when they have an idea. I went home and I blogged about it. And I kind of expected that I'd write this post and it would go out into the ether and I'd never hear back from anyone again. And instead, what happened was the next morning I wake up and I find like 20 some odd comments on the post. And I have my inbox has like five or six emails in it. And all of a sudden I realized like, okay, this isn't a landslide of people, but certainly there's I hit a nerve here, there's something going on. So that's when I realized that I had hit on something that had there was a definite need for. And from there, it was a gradual process of uh, just iterating and testing this concept and figuring out like, okay, if we are going to DIY an MFA, what would that look like? And then literally doing little mini experiments on myself to figure out whether this worked or not until I finally came up with what is now DIY MFA, the company and the book. Amazing. Yeah, I can, I, I so relate to that. I have this weird love of going to college graduations. It's like, I've had a, a few friends like complete college later in life or do a second BA or go on to something else. And I love going to those graduations because it almost feels like you get that anointed feeling all over again, even if you're not doing the degree. So if anyone wants that, you should just start going to graduations. I think graduation crashers is the new wedding crashers. Um, <laughs> I love that. So you could do the DIY MFA program and then just go to some MFA graduation, get the full package. Okay, there's so much that you said in there that I think is great. There is this mystique around like, once you're inside the MFA, what's it going to be like? And I think that's often the, the case of many courses. Like there's so many courses out there, you know, promising to do anything. And it's like, once you do this, you're going to know all of these things. And the disappointment that comes from, oh, I think I kind of knew that. And so if somebody is naturally a pretty big reader and is naturally starting to play around with writing what would you say to them about like what's a good place to start I mean other than getting your book because it's very clearly laid out in there but what instincts should they be trusting that they probably already have so there are two things going on there right like one of them is trusting the instincts that you already have and sometimes that comes with learning how to identify 
witch instincts work or setting up a system. So I'm all about systems. I'm even though I'm kind of a creative, like loosey goosey, right brain person, I also get really nerdy about like the statistics and experimental and scientific method and stuff like that. So I think of everything in my life as a scientific experiment. So whenever I'm trying to figure out a new thing, I think, okay, what are the variables that I need to control? What's the output I want? And then I start systematically trying the same task over and over with different variables in play. So like, for example, when I was writing the DIY MFA book, I wanted to figure out where is my most efficient writing environment and writing time of day. And so I started experimenting with different environments and how much output I had in those environments. And I'd collect, it was very unscientific in the sense that like, you know, this was not gonna be published in a literary, you know, in some sort of journal or anything. I mean, I was literally just, you know, timing myself and counting my words, but getting a sense of like, okay, am I more productive when I'm at home or I'm over here and just sort of doing these little experiments on myself. So that's sort of one piece is finding systems so that you can fine tune and amplify the things that you are already good at. And then also identify the things that are holding you back so that you can eliminate them. So like with DIY MFA, really, when people ask me like, oh, is it a writing book? Yes, it's a writing book. But I've it's actually more of like a systematizing your life book, because a lot of the same concepts that you can apply to your writing process, I also apply them to my parenting process or to like the process of, you know, whatever, like if I need to work out or something, I will apply the same ideas to it. It's just a different outcome that I'm measuring. So that's one piece of the puzzle. The other piece is like systematizing exactly what you're doing. So for instance, with the reading, um, there's a whole section in the book where I go into like the different types of reading and how to read. But one of the fundamental pieces is making sure that you're choosing the right books to read in the first place. So assuming that your goal ultimately is to be reading so that you can amplify your writing, then it's that's a different kind of reading than what you would do if you're sitting on the beach with your Kindle in one hand and your a Mai Tai in the other and your feet up and the sun is shining, all that good stuff. Like that is a very wonderful way to read. I do not deprive want to deprive people of that. But it is not the way I would read if I wanted to actually fine tune my writing. So in that case, I think about book choosing books that amplify my writing in some way. So books that are similar to what I'm writing about so that I can see well, who my competition is, essentially. So when I was working on the DIY MFA book, I was also looking at other books about writing and about MFA related topics and seeing how other authors are talking about the same idea. In this case, I personally find it very hard to read competitive things while I'm in the thick of writing. So I did a lot of that research before I started writing my book. And then I kind of had that I, those ideas in my head and I just sort of launched into my own concept because I didn't want to like filter and allow things to seep in that actually belong to someone else's philosophy. Um, other books that might be useful, you know, seeing like, what are the newer books in your genre or topic? So in DIY MFA, I was always on, I always am on the out, lookout for uh, books about writing. And conveniently enough, my publisher, Writer's Digest, publishes a lot of those books. So I pretty much just watch whatever it is that they are publishing next and, you know, take a look at it and kind of just stay, you know, have your finger on the pulse of the niche that you are in. And then, of course, kind of seeing the classics and looking at, like, what are those books that have had staying power? And they don't necessarily need to be books that have been around for ages and ages and ages. They don't have to 
to be like, you know, 200 years old. I mean, I think the genre of writing books is a relatively recent thing, but still kind of knowing like what were those early books about writing all about, like the Ray Bradbury, you know, Zen of writing versus say like the latest book that's just been published off the presses. So that the, it's kind of just having a system of choosing the books that you're reading in the first place, because let's face it, life is short and there's a lot of books out there. So we have to be choosy about the ones that we read or we're never going to dig ourselves out from under our to be read pile. No, oh my God, I don't think I could even if I took a year off and did nothing but read. <laughs> I mean, they just they just sprout everywhere. So let me actually share something. So I live in New York and I have a man. So we live in a Manhattan apartment and we have committed the cardinal sin of all Manhattanites. We have converted a closet into a bookshelf. I think that's no one totally understandable. The one that I've seen that was the most intense was somebody who started storing books in the oven because they just said, you know what? All I ever eat is takeout. So <laughs> I, I need that. I need that space. So I love this because um, for so many reasons, because one thing is, is that when you think of books about writing in general, it seems like the the larger, and, and you know more about this niche than me, having done all this research, but it feels like the larger expanse of it is books about craft and sort mm-hmm. of how to craft a book. I see this all the time in degree programs. There's all this stuff about the sort of art of the field, whether that's, you know, it could be anything, but the the sort of business nuts and bolts kind of systematizing portion tends to get the short end of the stick. So I, I'm interested to hear that there are others because yours was the first one that I was like, oh, this is like how you do this, not just how you make pretty sentences. Yeah, I mean, it's I think it's also the sensibility of the individual writing the book. For me personally, I could never write a book that's super artsy fartsy, pardon my French. Like, I just can't do it. I don't have that in me. Um, my I come from a background of both like research and also design. Back in the day, I was a a toy designer. So I think in terms of design and like how to put things together. So that's exactly how I approached writing this book. It was almost like an architectural concept or a develop product development thing than a like artsy thing. So it's all about for me, the way I process information is thinking of like diagrams, or matrices or Venn diagrams or what have you. And that to me just is what makes sense. So that's what came out in this particular book. Maybe for other people who are more, you know, flowery with their words, that's the way they process information. So it kind of makes sense that that's how they teach it. Well, I think both people need support. I think and and I think that even if someone can write well they aren't necessarily good at figuring out when to write or how to get it done or how to keep going. So I'm wondering I have a few kind of objections or fears that come up that have been brought up by people writing and I'm wondering if we could just kind of nail down some solutions that you've discovered since you're the systems guru here. <laughs> If you have the sort of person who is has an idea, but is sort of struggling in the first draft stage and is like, oh, because any reader, as we know, if you read any book off the shelf in a bookstore, you're comparing their final draft to your first draft. So what are your hot tips for somebody for getting through the kind of slog of the first draft going down? I have this system that I call the living outline, and it basically boils down to a little mathematical equation. Three plus two equals one. I know you probably just did a double take there. So three is you have three acts. 
two is the two pivot points between the acts equals one universal story structure. All those things taken together create a story structure that you can find in every book. I know because I've pretty much like tried to like I've read I don't know how many books and like every time I read a book I can find those five things in that book. So basically the way the place where I see people kind of get into the slog is usually the act two part, right? It's pretty easy to get through like in act one, you're in the honeymoon stage, you're so excited about your book. And then you get to that first pivot moment where your character launches into the exciting new world that is act two. And that's when you hit the wall. So getting through act two, I find that there are a couple of like little hacks you can give like use to kind of keep yourself moving one of them is thinking about your supporting characters so how can you amplify those characters in that act or draw on them or like kind of move them around and do interesting things with their subplots so that you can keep the story going now the reason i call them supporting characters and not side characters or uh, secondary characters is because even though they are important characters in and of themselves, they all have their own lives. Like no character ever wakes up, you know, one morning and says, hey, I'm going to be a secondary character in someone else's life today. Like we don't do that as people. Right. But it, the, those characters, their job is to support the journey of the main character. So every time I'm stuck in the middle of an act, I would ask myself in the middle of act two, I would ask myself, OK, how does character C support character A's development? How can I then amplify that or play with that or create some conflict in that relationship? And think about that with with regards to all of your different supporting cast. So that's one little hack that can kind of help you sustain that momentum. Another one is using the rule of three. If you look in just about any book, you will see that there are things happen in threes. And there's a reason for this. The number three is built into our brains as humans. Like we kind of expect that it's like same, same, and then something different. You see that in like jokes with the punchline being the different thing. You see that in like, you remember those MasterCard commercials, like da 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 $10, blah, 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 $5, da yada yada priceless. Right. That's <sighs> the rule of three. So the, using the like and you find this in literature, like, for instance, in Pride and Prejudice, which is one of my favorite books, you see the rule of three in action in two different ways throughout Act Two. One of them is through the road trip story thread. So there are three big road trips throughout that uh, Act Two. One is when Jane goes off into London and has that whole thing, the fallout with Mr. Bingley, and she thinks that he doesn't really love her. The second is when... Uh, Lizzie goes to visit her friend, Mrs. Collins, um, and they have like that whole thing with Lady Catherine. That's when Darcy has the failed proposal and that kind of is a mess. And then there's the third time when she ends up traveling with her aunt and uncle and when she and Darcy actually start to get along. So kind of looking at those three uh like those three road trip narratives. And it's like the first two are kind of like failed road trips. And the third one, something good kind of does happen, even though it ends on a sour note because she has to run back home because her youngest sisters run off with Mr. Wickham. So like looking at those road, the sort of patterns that you can create throughout act two and thinking about like, okay, how can I do one, one, and then add a twist to the third? And that can also help you kind of carry the story through act two. Oh, I love that. 
Plus, I love Pride and Prejudice. So I love the idea of it as a road trip. It makes me want to do like a modern version where they're all in like jazzy cars and they're making mixtapes and like going off to the Peak District. I always uh, I like to talk about how the the central act of Pride and Prejudice boils down to two themes. One of them is road trip. and The other one's OMG boys, because they're also (laughs) three relationships, right? There's like the Bingley and no, not the Bingley, the uh, Mr. Collins proposal. That's a disaster. Oh. And then there's the Darcy proposal. That's also a disaster. And then there's also the whole Wick- Mr. Wickham thing. That's kind of a mess. So Hot like mess. Lizzie has three me- messed up uh, relationships throughout act two, which is kind of insane. That's awesome. I love this rule of three. Now I want to start reading like everything and looking for it. <laughs> the other thing that I love is the idea that the supporting cast is a really great way to divert your attention when you're feeling stuck with your main character. Like, what does he or she want to do? Oh, I could look at what these other people are doing. And maybe the main character is just responding to something going on with one of the supporting characters. Exactly. And I, I also like to think in terms of like archetypes. So you could have, there are different supporting character archetypes that come up again and again, and that serve specific functions in a story like so for on one hand i mean the the classic is the villain right like you have the bad guy like the whole purpose of the bad guy is to make life hard for the good guy but you can then play with that villain character like what are their motivations what if their motivations aren't all bad and like how can you kind of make that more shades of gray than like a specifically evil you know all the way evil character another one is the bff Uh, you know, best friend or the sidekick. And what's really fun with that archetype is thinking about how you can use the rule of three in that. So for instance, in Harry Potter, we have Harry, Hermione and Ron, they're like a little triad. And throughout the series, it's always those three together. But it always comes down as two against one, like whenever there's some sort of conflict, it usually that conflict happens because two of them think of one thing and the third one is like the odd one out and that helps sustain the the conflict throughout the stories and those alliances will often change like throughout the series and sometimes even multiple times in the same book I think in book four their alliances change like seven times or something it's kind of crazy so it's it's another way to kind of keep that momentum going so that you're not just thinking okay what else happens but you're also building the characters and making those characters grow into like fuller human beings this may be part of the reason why why is so popular because it's believable when you have adolescent characters that their alliances change multiple times. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that whole thing with with Ron and Hermione and the whole drama. I don't know. I love those books. There's another piece to that, too. I mean, think about like it that It wouldn't work if Ron and Hermione were carbon copies of Harry. But what works is that Ron and Hermione each bring some other quality to the relationship that Harry clearly lacks. So Harry is very brooding and very serious. And there's sometimes when he's just downright whiny and annoying. And having Ron as the comic relief is a really useful thing. Hermione is the smarty pants. I mean, she's the, the genius of the triad she's the one who basically has the answers and quite frankly like harry would have died at the end like somewhere in book one if it hadn't been for hermione so having her as sort of the brains of the operation also kind of contributes to the story in a way that harry would never be able to do on his own so i think this brings up a great question that i'm like taking mental notes working on my own book of what 
can, what are your supporting characters bringing to the main character and not trying to, to like, I don't know if I'm thinking of like a camping metaphor, which is weird because I'm not a big camper, but like if you try to pack all of the supplies on your main character, then they're going to fall down versus if you put, like you're saying, some of the brains with another character or some of the comedy or some other aspect with other characters, then it's easier for everybody to travel through the story. Exactly. And there's also the sort of pragmatic piece that if you give your character too many strengths, then you don't have any weaknesses and then they're not relatable to the reader and they feel like an all powerful, you know, character. And that's not very interesting. So if you give your character, like if you're going to give your character weaknesses, you have to strategically think, okay, who else could have this as a strength if this necessary in the story? The other piece of it too is thinking about like characters that can become stand-ins for other characters. So for example, in the Hunger Games, when the, that moment, the first pivot point in the Hunger Games first book is when Katniss, you know, volunteers to take her sister's place and then she goes off into the arena. At that moment, all of the characters who are with her in Act One have to stay behind. They're not allowed to go with her. So if you think about it from like Suzanne Collins's point of view, like she had to find ways to fill those supporting character gaps in Katniss's life without bringing those specific characters with her. So for instance, Prim has a very clear surrogate character in the rest of the book. That's Rue. Uh, Peta is the only one who actually does come with her. And then the mom, I mean, you could almost think of like the mother characters, like Cinna could be a sort of a pseudo stand-in or maybe Ify Trinket. Like there are sort of different components of some of the other important characters in her life that are represented in some of the characters that are with her in the arena and beyond. And that happens multiple times throughout the series. Whenever you have a character in isolation, sometimes the author will bring another character in who kind of fills that role so that you can keep that momentum going. Oh, that's a great thought. Yeah. Whenever you have any kind of a travel narrative, or someone moves to another location, they change jobs, change anything, you know, yeah, what do you do with that character momentum? That's a great thought. And you can even like, sometimes this stuff doesn't happen like in a calculated way. Sometimes it happens organically. Like at one point I was working with this one writer and she was writing a book and it was kind of like a travel narrative where this character was moving from place to place. Every chapter was in a different region. And I started noticing that with each of the chapters, there was an archetype that kept coming back again and again. And this archetype is what I call the fool archetype. The fool is the archetype that's basically been around the longest has been here since um, like the ancient Greek plays had a fool, it was the chorus, and you see it in Shakespeare and yada yada. And the purpose of the fool is they're basically the characters telling the hard truth. So they're the ones that the the main character, the protagonist, doesn't really want to hear this piece of information. And this is the character who says it to them and kind of makes them face it. And what I was observing in this writer's pattern is that every character, every time this protagonist got to a new place, there was some chance encounter where a fool archetype would come in and reveal some small but important truth to the main character that then would affect what happened in the next chapter. And she had done that two or three times, two or three chapters in a row. So then my next instinct was like, why don't you just start doing it on purpose? Like you're doing it naturally. Now start using that as a strategy with each subsequent chapter you write so that you actually are creating a pattern. And then at some point, you'll probably want to break that pattern 
But that will then be at a key moment in the story when you want to kind of catch your reader off guard and make them sort of <gasps> catch their breath because that they're going to expect that moment. But then you're not doing it. You're doing something different. And that sort of uh, creates a new effect. That's so cool. One thing that I love looking at that sounds really boring, but this is playing into that, but it actually isn't boring for me at all, is looking at the conventions of the world you're dealing with and the conventions of the characters and the conventions so that you, A, understand them, think about, I mean, this plays into memoir a little bit too, is like, what is the world in which these people that you're reading about inhabit? And how clear does this need to be to the people reading? Because I think it's really easy when you're dreaming up the story in your head to assume, oh, of course, everybody understands how the Hunger Games work. Or, you know, it's how to create the world, bring people into the world without banging them over the head with the world. Absolutely. Although what I would say is the last piece is the most important piece, right? Like what I see a lot of newer writers do, especially when they're writing something that's very world heavy, like fantasy or sci-fi or speculative, um, is that they get so caught up in building that world and making it very detailed and intricate right from the first chapter that they forget to tell a story. If you look at The Hunger Games, the beginning of that first chapter is just Katniss hanging out talking to Gale. And you kind of don't really know what the reaping is or what's really going on. All you know is that they're sneaking out of wherever it is they live, that they could get into a lot of serious trouble if they get caught, and that there's something bad that's about to happen. And it's really only in that moment when we're in the, you know, in that square, and that Efi plays the video, and you know, like, this is how we protect our future and that whole thing, that we start to get a sense of like the intricacies of the world. And then you kind of notice that like another little hack that a lot of authors use to develop the world without feeling like they're being obnoxious about it is to take a character who's not used to that world and put them in it. So like the fact that Katniss doesn't know what it's like to be a tribute and what the, the capital is like. And so she doesn't know the rules as it were. And then Ethie and Hamish and all these people, Cinna, they all have to explain certain things like, no, now you're going to do X or now you have to go and train with Y. Like that's when, she learns about it. So then we as readers learn about it. So it feels less didactic than if the writer is trying to tell the character something that the character already knows. Yeah, trying to tell the character something they already know always feels like a melodrama. Like, Mm -hmm. oh, goodness, or the worst is a character telling themselves. Oh, my God, (laughs) it's my ex wife with whom I had a terrible divorce last year. I feel so much pain in my heart. You know, that's, you don't want to do that. Yeah, no, no, do not do that. Well, it's almost like the, I think subplot in a way is like a secret that you're trying desperately to keep. Mm -hmm. And then maybe some of it leaks out against your best efforts is kind of how I like to think about it. I mean, I, I think of it more as just being with the character, like just being in the world with the character. And it's for me, it's all about trust, right? Like if the reader trusts that the writer knows what they're doing, then we are willing to go pretty far with that writer without requiring a ton of information right up front. The problem happens when we stop trusting the writer. So like if the writer does things at the beginning of the book that that tests or challenges that trust, then it's like you have to kind of earn it back. So for example, like most of the time, 
in most books, conventionally, the protagonist appears in one of the early chapters, especially if you're writing something that's like, you know, literary or just commercial. Maybe in some thrillers, you'll see the crime happen. And so you don't see the detective right in the first chapter. But those are sort of exceptions. So when that appearance of that main character is delayed, that is something that will stretch your reader's trust. But you can still do it artfully. For example, there's this wonderful middle grade novel called um, The Wayne Scott Weasel by Tor Seidler. And he deliberately delays the appearance of the protagonist who only shows up in the second character. And it's a middle grade book. In most middle grade, the main character shows up on the first page. So I remember reading this book and being like, whoa, what the heck's going on here? Because you have this whole scene. It's about these weasels hanging out in Long Island in the forest and having a party. And you see the you meet all these characters and you kind of think that like these other characters over here are the main characters. And then all of a sudden, in chapter two, you're like focusing on this one little shy weasel who's sort of off in a corner by himself. And I remember being sort of thrown off guard by that. So I did what any normal person would do when they have a question about a book. I asked the, the writer and I was able to do that because I actually was in a class. I was taking a class from the author. So I, I asked Tor and I was like, what were you doing? And he told me, well, this character is very shy. And so I wanted to emphasize the fact that he's not a character who's going to step into the spotlight and be sort of stealing the show from the first page. So I wanted to hold him back. And I recognize that that probably stretched your trust a little bit. But hopefully by the time you meet the character, it then kind of builds back up. And I was like, yeah, it totally did. And it totally worked. So you can do it artfully, but you want to be aware that you're doing that. Yeah, it's the whole knowing the rules so that and you then can breaking break them. them. I mean, I'm thinking of, you know, this is probably dicey to talk about. Um, if you uh, if you have never read or watched Game of Thrones in any way at all and plan to do so, just hit like the 30 second fast forward button. But <laughs> I mean, it's it could be summed up in like people you don't think are going to die. Everybody, no one is safe in that series. Yeah. And and you think that certain characters, if, if people spend enough time on them, that, that they'll make it through. And not necessarily. But I think breaking that convention makes it shocking and stays with you after you read through that part. Well, and the other piece of it, too, is it has to be done for a reason, right? Like, you can't just decide to kill a character unexpectedly for no reason whatsoever. Like, I mean, you know, I think the spoiler alert... Uh, like has run out on 24, the the original series. At the end of the show 24, there, uh, the first season, a character who's very important, and this was like a million years ago. So if people are planning on watching it, well, tough. Um, this character dies. And it's literally the very last scene of the very last episode. And but it is earned like that is an earned death. Like, you know that like you've been following this character. You have this character has almost died multiple times throughout the season. You you kind of have like you've fallen in love with not just this character, but like the relationships that this character has with other people. So the fact that this character then dies and the fact that it's a character who is close to the protagonist. So 
then that's going to take its toll on the protagonist in the subsequent seasons. That made sense. What wouldn't make sense is if all of a sudden you started killing people willy nilly. And this is what happened in the show 24 in like season five, when it basically jumped the shark and started like killing off random characters with no send off whatsoever. And it was just like, why did we even care about these characters in the first place? Now they're all dead. So like, that's where you kind of need to draw the line, I think. Yeah, you have to, you can push convention up to the point where people get freaked out or traumatized and don't want to continue. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, understanding that everything you do has to be earned. So like every time you break a rule, you are stretching someone's trust, which means you need to earn it back. And it means you also have to earn the privilege to be able to break that rule in the first place. You can't just kind of right out of the gate, start breaking rules and expect people to stick with you because they're just not. I mean, realistically speaking, people are just going to put the book down. Yeah, it's true. If you're confused or don't understand what's going on, it's it's hard to get people to stick with you. So I want to... Before we wrap up, I want to talk about one other thing that you mentioned at the beginning, and that was that you had built up a critique group that you had that you trusted in many ways more than the one that was presented inside of your MFA program. So I'm wondering if you could share a little bit about creating a critique group. So as people are working through all of these things that we've just thrown at them, For a while, you want to keep it to yourself, but at a certain point, you want to have some thoughtful, considerate, and supportive readers to kind of respond and give you some feedback. So could you say a little bit about how people could go about creating a group like that for themselves? Absolutely. And I'd like to encourage listeners also not just to think of it as like a critique group. Really, what you want to be thinking about is building your writerly circle of trust. And that could involve people who critique your work, or it could just involve people who keep you accountable. I mean, I had a group of writers who we didn't necessarily critique each other, but we would get together and write in tandem. I have a fellow accountability partner who every so often we live in different states will open up Skype and I'll be in New York City and she'll be like outside of Philly and we'll be writing together. And occasionally we'll look up and go, how do you spell blah, blah, blah? Or, you know, is it two F's and yada, yada? And and then we go back to writing like we're sitting in the same Starbucks, but just you know, in Skype. And so you could have an accountability, like group or system as well, or people who just are there to support you like writer friends who get what it's about. Because let's face it, we are word wizards living in a muggle world and not all non writers understand what writing is all about. So you kind of need to have that network of people who just get it. And when you send, you know, query letters, or when you're struggling through a revision, they're going to understand how hard it is because the non writers, unfortunately, might just go, what's a query letter? And, you know, that kind of sucks. And and then also having people that you can turn to for advice. So for me personally, that group that I was in was actually a critique group. And that was a group that we would meet every other week and we'd trade manuscripts. And the way we'd work was every week, only one person was on deck for critique, one or two people, because there was like five or six of us. So if we tried to like swap manuscripts for everyone, like it would just either be a marathon meeting or we wouldn't be able to like go into anything in any depth. And It began very organically where it was just like a whole bunch of us were in a writing class together in New York City. And then we just kind of band together after the class was over and continued meeting. And then occasionally a person would drop out and another person would come in and we sort of kept cycling through. Eventually, we realized we had to have a little bit more of a 
not strictness to it, but like structure. So we started being a little bit more selective about people who came into the group because some of us had been together at that point for like six or seven years. And so bringing in a new member meant we wanted someone who would fit the vibe of the group. Um, and then eventually we started realizing we needed to like adjust the way we ran the meeting. So in the beginning, we kind of had everyone bring in stuff whenever they had it ready. Then we started being a little bit more like systematic about having a schedule. And, you know, this week it's so-and-so in two weeks, it's this other person. Um, and so having that group, I think, for us, for me, it was great. And then it got to a place where we also realized that like our goals were shifting. And that's the other thing. I mean, it's sad to talk about it. But even though we're all still good friends, and we all still stay in touch, we decided mutually that we had to disband because some of us were going in one goal, one person had already published a book and was working on promoting that and going on tour. I was working on DIY MFA, a few other people had other projects going on. And it just kind of recognizing also when the group it's time to say goodbye as a critique group and shift into more of that support group or like let's just be writer friends uh system is important and it's something people don't often talk about I think like you sort of feel like you're in a group you're in it forever or that like somehow it's like always going to be sunshine and roses and perfect and so kind of just being I guess the advice I would give is go to places where you can meet with people organically and just start organically. But then as things start to get a little bit more established, that's when you sort of feel things out and you start to set like ground rules of sorts. And eventually, you know, the other piece too is like figure out who is kind of the group leader. A group without one person as the leader is going to be very hard to sustain. Like you usually need that one person who kind of makes sure that everyone brings their manuscripts on time and shows up when they need to show up and that we have a space to meet in and whatnot. So if and and that person needs to be willing to be the leader, like having it be an ad hoc thing where one person just kind of ends up stuck leading can also put pressure on that person. So thinking about kind of starting organically is always the best way, but then eventually starting to set some ground rules and having that like uh, self-awareness as a group to then sort of grow together. The other piece that I thought was really awesome about our group is that we spanned probably 60 years in terms of age and every single genre. Like it was crazy. Like it was probably the most diverse group in terms of genre and ethnicity and like age and whatever. So for me, that worked. For other writers, they want to be in groups where they are writing the exact same thing that the other people are writing, like the same genre or the same category, where they're all women and they're all around the same age. And like, that's what works. So find what works. For me, I wanted something that was kind of this mishmash of very different people. And the only thing that we really had that was exactly in common was our love of writing. I love that. Okay, amazing. So thank you so much for all of this. And I want to know, um, I know that you have some things coming up this fall. So I want to hear a little bit about that so people can come and find you. We'll have links to everything, um, your site and your book and everything so they can find that. But tell us a little bit about what's going on for you now that people might want to check out. So sometime this fall, we will be reopening the DIY MFA flagship course, our 101 course. And so um, be on the lookout for that. And the best way to stay in the loop and sort of find out what's new and also to get some awesome freebies is to join our email list. We have a free starter kit that you get when you join. And you can go to uh, DIYMFA.com slash join. And um, 
basically the starter kit kind of hits on everything we talked about today. It talks about it has one little exercise that helps you create a writing system for yourself, has one exercise that helps you curate your reading list, and then a whole other exercise that helps you figure out that circle of trust and building that network of people around yourself. It was sort of awesome how organically we hit on all the three major things that are the most important DIY MFA concepts. So if you wanted to sort of put into action what you heard on this show, I would recommend just grabbing a copy of the starter kit. Awesome. That sounds perfect. I know. Hilarious. We just, I was like, these are the questions I have. Clearly it's the questions that everyone has. So (laughs) thank you so much, Gabriella, for coming on and for chatting with me about this. It was super fun for me. And I know I'm already thinking about some things I can play with in my novel and I'm sure everyone else is as well. Thank you. This was a blast. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Secret Library Podcast. The show is produced by me, Caroline Donahue, and Frederick Barry McWilliams Jr., my tireless audio engineer. To get show notes for this episode and all other episodes, please visit secretlibrarypodcast.com. To get updates, literary love, and notification when new episodes are posted, sign up there for Footnotes, my newsletter. And to learn about life coaching with me to work on building your writing life, visit carolinedonahue.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. Gold stars to everybody who leaves a rating and review on iTunes. We're so grateful. Until next time, happy reading.